Hello, Damon. Hello, Jeremy. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm excited. I'm doing well, too. We've got a special guest, Sean Feeney. Hello, Jeremy and Damon. Hello, Sean. Sean is a multi-genre, multimodal, poly-everything artist, musician, and creator. He and I went to college together, and in the 20 years since... To the best of my knowledge, Sean, you can correct me if I'm getting some of these details wrong. He's worked as a police sketch artist, an industrial light and magic creature designer, a professional pumpkin carver, really and truly. Like, you won a Food Network TV show, you went to the White House, (laughs) and that's not even any of your sound stuff, which is our main reason for talking today, which ranges from classical education at Harvard to punk bands to more recent training at the California Institute of Integral Studies and a deep listening certificate course. How accurate was that capsule bio? <laughs> I'd give you a 85 to 90% accuracy. Oh, wow. <laughs> a solid B+. Plus. Yes, yes. So what I get wrong and what I miss? I wasn't officially a creature designer at Industrial Light and Magic, although I did a little bit of that. I did work in the art department there which I will have your eternal gratitude for because you were the one who introduced me to your friend who worked there, who helped set things in motion for me to get the job there. And, oh yes, and I I don't think I was ever in a punk band, but I was definitely in some metal bands. (laughs) See, that's how music dumb I am. I can't even distinguish that well between punk and metal, or at least I couldn't when I was 18, 19 years old and Mm. you were in those bands. So... One thing I wanted to get into, and then I'm sure Damon just has a ton to add to in the sound therapy, deep listening, audio healing area, is our kinship as guys trying to make weird and interesting things in the world. And yet we're far enough apart in the worlds we've worked in that I've never felt like this jealous, competitive (laughs) part. So it's always been a pure appreciation, admiration, and enjoyment of your different projects. They're just these little wonderful things that pop into my life, whether it's the yearly for a long time music video that was a time lapse of an amazingly intricate pumpkin carving based on a revered musician who had died in the past year or You had your BFF project where people sent in pictures of themselves and their best friends and you made artistic mergings of them or you've had sculptures that could play music and spinning out of your police sketch artist life. You had posters and other artwork based on collections of noses and ears and other parts and pieces. And I guess I just wanted to know, how would you describe your kind of life and journey as an artist and creator? Is it a profession? Is it a calling? Where do you see yourself? Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, it's been a, a long, strange journey. It's still going on. I guess I've always been interested in the visual arts since I was a little kid. I always loved drawing and sculpting. 
And then as a teenager, I really fell in love with music. And so since then, I've always been trying to work with both, either in ways where I'm combining both disciplines together or working at one at a time. And so it's been challenging to try to make that a particular profession. It's not like I could look at someone and be like, oh yeah, I'll just get a job as a one of these artist musician people. <laughs> so I've always been trying to find ways to pursue what I think of as more of a vocation, more of my calling, and just trying to find ways to get by and find opportunities to get it out into the world. Do you have a job right now? I do have a job right now. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Come to Montana. We have a safe place for you. <laughs> well, I was freelance for my final few years when I was living in California. And then once I moved back to New York, I did get a day job. And so it has its pros and cons because when I was freelancing, I was basically taking on any gig that presented itself to me. And it was everything from logo design to murals to fruit carving stuff and apps, all these things. And there was a real blurring of how I was using my creativity to just make money to get by and how I was using my creativity for my more like capital A art projects. And so once I, you know, got a day job again, suddenly it gave me this clarity, like, oh, I, now that I have limited time and energy to work on the things I want to work on, all, I no longer have to just take on any opportunity that comes my way. And it really clarified, what do I actually want to do? What do I actually want to put out in the world? Mm. And, and I think that's why in the past few years, I've been more into making music because that's what was at the top of my list at that time. What is the day trap, if I may ask? I am working for a medical simulation company, and I do video, animation, and photography work for them. They make like mannequins for learning CPR and things like that. And it's funny because it actually connects to my first college summer job, which was working at a place called American Hand Prosthetics in New York City, mm -hmm. where I was in a lab making fake hands. So fake body parts seem to uh, be a theme in my life. And real body parts that aren't present at the moment, exactly. like the police <laughs> sketch stuff. Yeah. I do love it. Your boring day jobs are pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always tried yeah. to use the day job as also an opportunity to learn and to increase my skills for my art. So working as a forensic artist, I got to take classes on facial anatomy and working at Industrial Light and Magic was an incredible learning experience from all the other artists uh, that worked there. So when possible, I, I try to take that approach. And forensic artist, I take it, is the official term for police sketch artist? <laughs> it is, yeah. Do you have a tension or divided loyalties, or do they integrate the deep talent and interest and productive work in art and that in music, or I should even just say sound, because I don't know if music is even too confining for what you do? Well, I've done a lot of projects where I try to combine both interests. so. Some of the things you've mentioned, like my Memorial Jack-O-Lantern series, it's sculpture, but it's portraits of musicians I really admire. And my musical anatomy drawing series, drawing, but it was visualizing some of the experiences musicians have of the instrument feeling like it's 
uh, an extension of your body. And even with some of my music that I've made, I've worked on visualizers, things that can synesthetically give a sense of what's going on in the music in the visual realm. So sometimes I try to bring them together, and sometimes I'm happy just letting music be music and letting art be art. How do you visualize music? Well, synesthesia, are you familiar with that term? It's like when you can see colors associated with words, and it probably goes way beyond that. Yeah, it's that basic idea where a certain sensory input triggers a different sensory perception in the mind. Certain people have this or born with it, where yes, they'll, they'll, certain tastes will you know bring up certain colors in their head or things like that. So I've done things where it's, it's like applied synesthesia, if you will. I, I don't have that condition, but I'll do things like I've made on the computer like an app that can analyze the sound and say, make the size of the shape that generates determined by the volume of the sound and its height on the screen determined on the pitch of the sound. So mapping musical characteristics to visual characteristics. Cool. Yeah. I think of, I have no idea if it's related in any way, but I think of the pictures from space that NASA sometimes generates where they're like, Mm -hmm. this isn't really the colors, but (laughs) it's a way to differentiate these different physical features that you haven't had enough math for us to explain to you. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like for example, taking in the whole form or structure of a song, you could do it visually instantly by, by seeing it visualized. Whereas sonically you have to, you have to sit through the whole thing in the temporal range. Yeah. So speaking of sound, ardent listeners will have noticed that Damon has been silenced (laughs) or silent for a while. And that is because I have to admit he's been silenced because he's in this like tin barn in a, horrific uh, rainstorm or hurricane, but if you dare to unmute yourself, we can give people a listen, Damon. Are you, are you still there? <laughs> I am still here. I'm still dry. I've been doing a lot of deep listening while I've been sitting here on mute. And I love it. <laughs> I have, to be honest, hadn't heard that term outside of some of my training and counseling, etc. But I, I'd love to start there, Sean. It's fascinating to hear you talk a little bit about artists who feel connected to their instruments. And that reminds me of so many performers that are lost within the activity. It's they're almost as if the action and their awareness are merged. And I'm curious, first of all, about deep listening and maybe the foundation of the the practice itself and and how that came about as a an interest for you and what that looks like in in day-to-day life yeah well the way i'm talking about the term deep listening is connected to the composer pauline oliveros and what has grown into now the, the center for deep listening but to talk about how I got into it, it actually goes back a few years. I was visiting Bali with my partner, Nirmala, and for vacation. And, and a friend of mine named Axel, another college friend, had recently been there. And he said, oh, you have to go uh, see this sound healer named Patricius when you go. He's like, I went and I was like seeing visions and things. So I was really curious. And so we went and... He had this setup where we both lie down on a massage table and 
on one end by your feet. He's got a gong and he's using these Himalayan bowls and placing them on your body and basically doing an improvisational sound journey performance for an audience of two people. And he's at times putting the instruments right on your body for a direct resonance where you're listening, not just with your ears, but through your body into the inner ear. And so, yeah, I found it to be a really relaxing and unique experience. And I also thought, wow, this is like the art I've been making recently of these musicians who are connected to an instrument where it, it is, you know, literally connected to your body. And as a musician at the time, I was feeling a bit frustrated performing out at bars and clubs where the music often is in the background while people are getting drinks and talking and things like that. And I really wanted to be performing more in venues where the listening was really important. And so in, in this sound journey experience, yeah, you're perfectly silent and really deeply listening to everything that's going on. So that's what got me interested. I was seeing that connection to my art and my musical interests. And so I did a course in San Francisco, as Jeremy mentioned, and then I later took the course in deep listening. And so that developed out of work by Pauline Oliveros starting, I believe, in the 70s. And she first got the term from a uh, recording she did in this underground empty cistern in Washington State that she recorded with a few other musicians down there. And because of the shape and construction of that space, there's a 40-second reverberation time. So you can make a sound or play a note in the space, and then it just hangs in the air for almost a minute. And so Pauline had a great sense of humor, and so she titled the album Deep Listening, not just mm. because they were listening deeply to each other while playing, but because they were deep underground in this system <laughs> when they recorded it. So she was not above punning. But that grew into her whole philosophy, and the Deep Listening Institute involves three factors. There's listening with your ears from the musician's point of view, like that's Pauline's perspective. Then there is listening with the body. And that brought in a partnership with Heloise Gold, who is a Tai Chi and Qigong practitioner and dancer. And then also listening in dreams, in which Pauline brought in her partner, Ion. Because Pauline's mantra was, listen to everything all the time. That's what she tried to do. and so. If you're really listening all the time, that's got to include when you're asleep and when you're dreaming. So it's a really interesting approach to life, really, to just be that open in your awareness, to listen all the time and remind yourself when you're not listening. So like lucid dreaming, but it's lucid listening? Lucid dreaming can be part of it. But even if you're not a lucid dreamer, I went to a deep listening retreat last year. And they divided us up into small groups. And each morning in our group, we would talk about the dreams we had the night before. And dream communities would arise from that. And strange synchronicities would happen too. Like you'd see similar symbols in different people's dreams. Like I had a dream about a turtle and someone else had a dream about a turtle. and Yeah, strange things like that. So when you said listen to your dreams, you meant pay attention to them. It's not necessarily only hear the audio content of your dreams. 
Yeah, I think I think the whole deep listening approach could more broadly be called deep perception, deep awareness. Yeah, because you can expand it to deep seeing, deep tasting, deep touching, all of that. Damon, I'm sure you're ready to leap in. I mean, I can imagine all of the, I don't know, like the byproduct, I guess, of of developing a practice like like deep listening. And I'm wondering a little bit around just your own personal experience of how implementing more broadening your awareness, as you say, how is that, how does that manifest or how has that affected you? For example, many people hold on to a lot of trauma, a lot lives in our unconscious beneath the surface. Have you found that starting this practice has informed you about more of who you are on a more holistic level? And is there an element of relief to that for what comes about by becoming a more well-honed, deep listener? Well, it's definitely had a big impact on my musical practice. Studying these approaches has really gotten me to slow down my approach to music and to be more aware that I'm listening and composing, not just with the concepts in my head, but with my whole body. And so I, I would start by doing practices that I learned in the other course I took with a teacher named Sylvia Nakash of simply spending some time each day just humming on a single tone and moving that tone around up and down and feeling where it resonates in different parts of my body. And then I got a, a quartz bowl and I would practice singing along with that as a drone and becoming more aware, not just of notes as materials to construct uh, a musical creation, but as something in itself that is so rich and so full that you can explore a lot within just a single sound. Mm. That's so beautiful. You're reminding me, last summer, I went to a sound bath performance. Yes. I think that's what it was called. And it was like a guy wheeled in the world's largest xylophone. It's <laughs> <laughs> like this giant swing set of instruments and tuning forks and gongs and bowls. We were to lie down and let the the bath sweep over us. And certainly I felt all those vibrations, as you say, not just in the ears, but in the bones and through the skin seemingly. But the beginning was a grouped humming. He would have us hum and we would find those points of match. And it was so powerful. All mm. of a sudden when we matched each other or when we matched him and my teeth just felt electric or vaporized and my, my skeleton came alive. And the bath followed, so I had forgotten that introduction, but I'm realizing that that point of interaction with it at the very beginning was maybe even the most powerful part. Yeah, it sounds like you really experienced resonance there. Resonance, I didn't even know the word, but yeah, it makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, the whole idea, like with sympathetic resonance, for example, if you were to, to, if you had a harp in front of you and you sang a melody, all the notes that that harp has that you also sang would be ringing because of the phenomena of, of resonance. And so when you're, say, singing a note 
and in tune with a group of people all doing that same thing, that phenomenon is going to happen too. And it's, yeah, pretty wonderful. You're melting my brain <laughs> because it's, it's physically recalling that. And I just didn't have that term mm -hmm. and I didn't realize that was happening. I don't have any musical training and I don't think of myself as being able to sing at all, but I was up for humming in a group. And I didn't realize even what was happening. I had the physical experience, but now that you're articulating it, it's coming back to me and uh, like the hair on my arms is standing up <laughs> because it's, it's having that re-resonance. And obviously it's so richly metaphorical when you find someone that you resonate with, you actually, it's not just that it, it resonates with you, it, it, it makes sense to you. It's that it literally turns things on in you, those same notes. I'm just over here humming to myself. <laughs> and and I have to say, it feels really good to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy it. I actually, hearing you both speak, it, it reminds me uh, a couple of years ago, my family, we traveled around the world for a year and one of our stopovers was in Bali. And we went and saw a performance that I I can't remember the name of the world, I, a word, I want to say Kachuk, but mm -hmm. that might... Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, the, the monkey chant. Yes, yes. And what drew me, well, first of all, it's, it's basically people chanting, telling the story, and they're filling in as you, number one, I didn't, I couldn't interpret it through language. So I couldn't make meaning of the, the words and the story, which I think really cracked me open to be able to hear some of those sounds inserted. And there was one man that just made this like, yeah, 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 sound it, in the midst of all the other things that were going on. And it just, it, it I was like transfixed with his, I don't know, that, that, it just penetrated me. And, and I recorded, I, I created an audio, a video of it. And when I replay it, it hits me in that same spot. But it, it reminds me in a way of what, what it seems like, at least my interpretation of what the idea around sound and making, creating sounds and finding notes where they were inserting these vibrations and these sounds within some other construct that even though I didn't know the, the structure of it, it it had this power beyond making meaning and creating some a cogent story or thread while listening to it. Yeah, that music is really amazing. They're, they're doing a technique called hocketing, where what you hear when they're really doing that kachuk thing, it's like chaka 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 chaka. But if you were to listen to each individual, they're going chuck, chuck, chuck. Chuck, chuck, or something like that. And all these patterns are interlocking and overlapping to make it sound faster than any single person could do. And it's, it's really extraordinary. I had an interesting meditation retreat experience at the new year outside of Los Angeles at Big Bear. It's this piece of Montana that's in Southern California. You're like in the snow a couple hours outside of LA. Do you know that place? I don't. Was this your silent meditation? I had a silent meditation retreat that I had done 
last summer. That was my first. That was mm-hmm. right before. That definitely primed me for the sound bath. I came back, saw the sound bath poster, and was like, yeah. <laughs> but then I had a second experience, which was at the new year. And what was interesting about that, and the reason I bring it up here, is so much of meditation as it's led is often about following and paying attention to your breath. And the particular instructor of this retreat who came in and out of of leading some of the guided parts of the meditation and was one of the few only people that could talk (laughs) because for everyone else, it was silent. She just was like, breath just doesn't work for me. It's just boring. I've never been able to follow it. It's not the way I'm able to meditate. And she said, for me, it's sound. And it's also happening all the time. And it's outside of myself. It's, I don't know what the word is for things that you don't control. Involuntary? Involuntary. That's a good (laughs) word for it. I remember talking to a surgeon once and was like, what's that part between your your hand and your your arm? That that part always hurts. And he's like, your wrist? (laughs) I was like, oh, well, you're the the doctor. Uh, I don't know these fancy terms. Okay. Involuntary. Yeah. So with breathing, obviously, there's voluntary and involuntary. You can choose to breathe, but you also can't choose not to breathe. It's Mm -hmm. also automatic. And that's true of sound, too, in the sense that you... It's out of your control, these outside sounds that are happening all around us, but you can, it is in your control whether you listen or not. (laughs) And that was her point. And she was just like, instead of paying attention to your breath, if you want, you could just pay attention to every single sound. And when it starts, when it stops, what its character is, when it overlaps, if it's near, if it's far, what's the closest sound you can hear? Mm Mm-hmm. What's the most distant sound you can hear? What's the rustle? What's the crackle? What's the hum? And this is a five-day silent meditation retreat. And with that priming, I just spent hours and hours listening to just like, when does the airflow vent come on and off? And trying not to label. When do you hear a helicopter? It's close enough to Los Angeles, even though it's hours away. When do you hear a helicopter? overhead? When does a water bottle open or someone shift or rustle? And just with that level of attention, I had this amazing, for me, breakthrough where sounds would come, sounds would go. And I started to recognize the same thing happening in my own thoughts. They were like sounds. They would come from outside me. They weren't voluntary. And they would have a certain resonance and I could listen to them or I could let them go. And it was that practice with listening to sounds so closely that had me make this cognitive leap or experiential leap to I am not my thoughts. And my thoughts are coming from outside me in a sense. And I'm not responsible to them. I don't have to answer to them. I don't have to be consumed by them. I can listen or not, but it can be like a radio playing in a passing car. Or it can be like a podcast a roommate is listening to in the kitchen. It's not something I have to attend to as if every single thought is like a siren that's coming for me. (laughs) It can just be a siren of a passing ambulance. And that was a metaphorical link, but for me, it was an experiential link. And it came from that deep, deep listening to to sounds as a meditation practice. And I, I wonder, as you've developed this sound meditation 
learning and I presume practice too. Does any of that resonate, if you will, for you? Oh, completely. In fact, I've used that same technique in, in some retreats and workshops I've done of listen for low sounds, listen for high sounds, distant, close. And it gets at, you know, one of the key things about deep listening, which is that difference between listening and hearing. Hearing is passive and listening is active, just like with breathing. And yeah, what, what you experience also reminds me of a quote I learned from my teacher, Sylvia Nakash, who goes back to an Indian music teacher that the purpose of music is to sober and quiet the mind, thus making it susceptible to divine influences. <laughs> and divine influences can mean many things, but I think it has to do with a transpersonal experience that's not about your ego or your thoughts, but about connecting to the larger experience and world. And that sound bath is available anywhere, anytime. Yeah. That's what I've taken from that retreat experience mm -hmm. is I can be sitting in my backyard and just what are the sounds that come? What are the sounds that go? What's close? What's far? What's loud? And it wash over me. And instead of this feeling of trying to control things or where am I or what's the story, the sounds are like a passing cloud. There's often an, a metaphorical analog that meditation teaches your inner life, your inner self is really like the sky and it's obscured sometimes by these passing clouds, but the clouds do not change the nature of the sky. They're mm -hmm. just in front of it. And I find that I can look at clouds and have that thought, but sound registers it experientially even more for me. That's just basic exercise, even sitting in my house, sitting in a cafe. When I used to be able to sit in cafes, <laughs> it's all a sound bath. Yeah. And I don't know if that makes a challenge in a funny way to try to make music to evoke that thing on purpose. You're competing with delivery trucks and, and birds uh, that are doing such a good, and refrigerator hums. How do you, what's your advantage? <laughs> there? That's true. That's true. And I think like someone like John Cage definitely went down that path of really accepting all sound as music and that the musical experience in his perspective is incumbent on the listener. Are you familiar with his piece 433? It's the one where it's, it's quote unquote silence for four minutes and 33 seconds. Exactly. So you could imagine a piece of music that is just all notes and no rests. And there'd be nothing controversial about that. But he made a piece that was just all rests and no notes. And so the piano player would get on stage and sit there. And then the audience is now has already been used to being in this state of anticipation, right? And uh, perhaps increased awareness. And so, but the performer isn't providing any stimulus. So the idea is now the audience is listening to everything that's happening in that room. People coughing, mm. rustling, the air conditioner, whatever. And can they, through their own listening, have a musical experience or perhaps a meditative one? But in terms of what I'm doing, I guess what I think about my approach to music, and at least the album I put out this, this summer, Thin Places, is almost like musical nutrition. Like I'm trying to make sounds that perhaps are good for you. <laughs> and it is, Damon. 
How would you describe the kind of blood pressure experience, nervous system experience of listening to Thin Places, Sean's album? Yeah, it was it was incredibly calming and it just felt, I don't even want to say relaxing. I felt really grounded and it was, I had put it on and I was doing some other work and my wife was also sitting next to me and I didn't mention anything. I didn't set her up with what the album was or who, who you were, but we just both, there was just like this this calm and this a peaceful energy between the two of us. And we really got locked into some deeper work. I was battering around some concepts for a, a program I'm creating and I just felt stuck. And I would say half hour into it, I, I had some small crackles of breakthrough and I wasn't really even spending my attention perceiving the music. I didn't put it on in, on my headphones and just get lost in it. It just was in the room and it still had a really powerful effect. And I was actually struck by something that you had written about the, the title in your website, that the, the whole concept around Thin Place. And, and you said that it's, you describe it as sites where the veil between worlds grows thin and permeable. And I got a little... I got the chills when I read it after I had already listened to it. And I think in some ways that's what was going on for me. Oh, it's great to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, that, that term thin place, it's generally used to mean specific places on earth, generally in Ireland in that region, where when you're physically there, people report feeling, yes, that they are in different zones, different, almost different dimensions, different times. And what I found, especially playing these quartz bowls, that it almost creates a thin place through the music, if only temporarily. And there was a lot of overdubs that I tried to do on this album, layering in different instruments, vocals, and I had to get rid of so much of it because it, <laughs> it, it, it made it like too human, if that makes sense. Like it, it made it it brought it back to the mundane and I wanted to keep that otherworldly sense that when you're listening to it, that another zone has, has opened. It's, it's hard to capture in recording sometimes if you've ever heard quartz bowls played in a space, they really fill up and activate the air in such a unique way. But yeah, I'm glad you had that experience. Within our brains, we have this top-down processing or bottom-up processing. And most of us, when we're engaged, it's we are in control and we are using our willpower and our focus to make meaning and, and hone in on the thing that we're doing. And that can be exhausting. And it can be really exhausting just energetically and within the nervous system. And one activity that simply I'll have people step outside and what do you feel? What do you see? What do you hear? And just allow that bottom up where there's no agenda and there's no connection to quote unquote, like the, the real work or whatever it is that we're, we're spending a lot of time focusing on. And I think we've, we've lost our way in the sense that, you know, we've constructed our reality around all of these static symbols within language and 
connecting those symbols within language in our thoughts. And as you said, Jeremy, they, they have quite a hold on where we perceive things. And our perception is such a powerful way to navigate through life. And just hearing Sean mention, and, and you, Jeremy, with the idea of doing more of like sound meditation, that feels so bottom up where you are not in control, you are just observing. And that ability to split the subject object is healing and it's refreshing for you, Sean. Does that resonate? And in a practical sense for people listening, what are some other tools that are in line with that philosophy that, that we can use to inform and and open up to some more of that bottom up and wide open aperture. Yeah, well well Damon, I've heard you speak on the podcast before about making decisions from a state of calm awareness, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think doing deep listening practices or humming or toning, singing, whatever can help you get into that state. And I don't think that means that you need to deny other strong emotions or to push them down, but to to work through them and then get to that state where you can be calm. So if you're feeling really angry and you need to work through that, well, then uh, Sepultura or Metallica can be your sound healer in that moment, <laughs> you know? Or just bashing a drum set for 10 minutes can your sound healing exercise. It doesn't have to be all harps and tuning forks. It's about meeting someone where they're at, working through what needs to be worked through, and then get to that state of the calm awareness. So if someone just wants to plug in and play with this, someone's like, I don't want to sit and I don't want to meditate. That's just not working for me. Obviously, they should go to a band camp, get thin places. <laughs> what other ways to just try this out and see where it takes your mindset i'd recommend just trying to listen and pay attention more in the everyday places you're at in your home wherever you work and just try to notice what what is your soundscape every day and then maybe start to notice hmm is a certain sound bothering me can i do something about that are there certain sounds that I'm really enjoying and making me feel good? Can I get more of that? And then if you want to go from there, yeah, just just humming. It's so simple. And I don't mean like humming a tune. I mean just like a single, just finding a tone that's comfortable for your voice. You can do it in the shower. It also, by doing that, it helps you to slow down your breath. And of course, we know that has benefits. And I'd say start there. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And as it connects to some of the neuroscience and just some of the work that I do, when we ask our brains these open-ended questions, that there is, a, we tap into a more inherent wisdom. And we, in a way, we set our, our brains up to problem solve. And what I heard from you is some, these questions are more open-ended in nature. They weren't like, hey, go get the, go get your phone, put your headphones on and put this music on. This will help. <laughs> you know, that wasn't, it was, okay, well, what am I hearing right now? How does that make me feel right now? What else could I be doing right now? 
what feels appropriate right now. And these types of open-ended questions where we're setting ourselves up and prompting our brain, it activates a part of our brain that, that really starts to explore and become more curious and inquisitive. And I think with that, then perception can expand instead of getting fixated on that one thing and why did that happen and that jackhammer outside. I mean, all of us have had that experience where for me, it's a couple of houses down, he's got this leaf blower and he just all day long and and I fixate on it and I fixate on it and I attach something negative to it and sounds like what you're saying is it's just if I open the aperture and allow myself to to hear it but not then create the storyline afterwards then I hear other things and it's more of a a drop in the bucket of sound as opposed to just rattling around and the only thing that I can hear and the hum is the other one. I mean, there's a really beautiful breath practice that, that I do and I, I suggest. And it's basically you're inhaling 80%, then you inhale the, the last 20, and then you sigh, sigh it out. And that vibration has some play on our vagus nerve, which is one of the indicators that tells our brain whether we should freak out or stay calm. So that, that hum is a really beautiful practice as a, a tool, but then also physiologically that, that has so many, so many other added benefits. Yeah, exactly. When you, when you hum or sing a single tone, what, you're activating what's called the harmonic series, which without getting too into math geekery is basically a very simple geometric relationship of all the components of the sound in a harmonious way. And our voice can do that just like a, a cello string. And by humming, you're, you're activating that beautifully patterned geometric resonance of oscillation from the inside out. And that is propagating throughout your body. Wow. And it's, I mean, it's so simple too. Yeah. It's just, we have it, it it's free. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of like, there's coffee, there's chocolate, <laughs> there's Twitter, there's Facebook, there's sit-ups, there's meditating. And I could literally just stop and listen and just, what are the first three distinct sounds I hear from beginning to end? And then I can hum till I just get a little bit of a buzz and... <laughs> I may have a greater or equal effect to any of those other drugs of choice. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you, do, does one need any ability or talent to sing a specific note? Is there a note that, that is more impactful than others? Or is that just whatever, whatever you, whatever comes out of you stick within that same note? Can you explain that one a little bit? I mean, I obviously I get the humming and just humming in that same in that same whatever note that is, but how would one sing a single note? Well, of course, there's the brown note. So infamous. <laughs> Just kidding. No, there's a... <laughs> I think it is something that... No, you don't need any musical uh, talent, for one. I think anyone can sing a single pitch. And then it's a matter, I think, of self exploration in the sense that hum on a note that feels comfortable and then try something a little higher, a little lower. And then 
try to listen with your body and feel where is it resonating. And you may find that a certain pitch, you really feel it in your head. You may feel something different in your throat. Something a little lower might be in your chest. And that's something that I think everyone on their own has to discover. I see a lot of things like these singing bowls that are marketed with like different notes for different chakras. Mm-hmm. Like this is the heart chakra and this note is the throat chakra. And I mean, honestly, I think that is more of a marketing thing than anything else. Mm-hmm. I, I don't come from the tradition of the chakras and that that practice, but honestly, I doubt a lot of <laughs> the people selling these things are either. So <laughs> to find the note that resonates in your throat or your chest, you just have to try it out and uh, and find what works for you. Right. Gotcha. How would you close this time together, Sean? Is there a piece of music from the album we should play at the end as a segue to our outro? Is there a practice you'd have people start with, or is there a perspective you can offer? Hmm. I wonder if the three of us could try to the same pitch. Sure. Who goes first? Let's do it. (laughs) One of you two can start. I felt it in my teeth (laughs) and I felt it in my, is the center of your chest, your sternum? Is that the right word? I don't even know. I felt it in the center of my breastbone. How about you guys? Did you get anything? Damon, do we have to do Uh, it again? I didn't want to stop. I wanted to keep going. I felt like we were synced up. I'm not going to say I felt it in my teeth quite yet, but I was feeling like we were onto something there. (laughs) I felt like we were mermen. We were going to draw Odysseus onto the rocks. So that that can be a great way to instantly build a community. If you're in a room with people, it doesn't matter what masks of identity they're all bringing in. You get everyone humming or singing the same pitch you're instantly in resonance with each other mm. i'm trying that at dinner tonight it's powerful we're gonna when we get before we eat instead of saying anything or doing anything <laughs> i'm gonna say let's let's hum till we feel it in our teeth <laughs> <laughs> can we try that one more time sure yeah mm. feels good i like that mm-hmm. i felt that one in my around the zygomatic bone in my skull yeah did you yeah i felt it up there too we'll spell that for everyone in the show notes <laughs> yeah right <laughs> thank you all for listening thank you sean so much for joining us thank you storm for sparing damon's <laughs> life just long enough for this recording we'll give it to his grieving family if he doesn't make it out of the barn <laughs> We'll link, of course, to Sean's amazing album and as much of his work as we can fit in the length of the show notes because he has so much cool stuff going. And let's keep the hum in our hearts and our teeth and we'll go from there. Sound good, guys? Yeah. Thank you, Jeremy and Damon. This was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Sean. I really enjoyed it. 
Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy M. Smith. Produced by Matt Mullins at Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. And please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive.